first. Thank you, guys. And in preparation for this message, I was reading through a commentary or two or three this week, and the author of one of them mentioned something that jogged my memory from one of the books out of the C.S. Lewis series, The Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's book five. I know the title is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that, at the end of the book, two of the youngest of the four kids, Edmund and Lucy, along with their cousin Eustace, are in a boat, the Dawn Treader, headed eastward until they finally will make their way to the door that will lead them to their own kingdom, back home, basically. You know, they've lived, pardon. They've lived in a, uh, the magical land of Narnia, so it is time for them to get back. And as they're headed in that eastward direction, it's just the three of them now, and in the distance they see just this, the beautiful scenery of the horizon where the crystal blue sky meets the green of the pasture land out toward the east. And that's all they can see with the exception of one little bitty white dot. And the closer they get to the east, the more and more that white dot becomes in focus, and they realize that it's not just a dot, it's a lamb. And this lamb is actually, as they come closer and closer and closer to it, they realize that that lamb is making them a breakfast of fish on a fire. Sounds strange, but again, it's Narnia, and you roll with it. It's not strange to them. It's no more strange for this lamb to be making a breakfast of fish on a fire than it was for them to then ensue in a conversation with a lamb. And as they're having this conversation, they begin to ask the question of the lamb, can you please point us in the direction? Lead us to the land of Aslan. And if you're familiar with the books, they're referring to heaven, right? And as they're having that discussion with the lamb, the lamb transforms in front of them, right in their face, from this beautiful wool-white lamb into the massive beast of the lion, of the the tawny brown golden fur of this lion standing in front of them. And in that moment, the reader of the Don Treader, the Voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis's leading here, learns what you and I know as readers of the scripture, That the lion is the lamb. And it really is an incomplete picture to think of Jesus as most of us, you know, have in this visual of ourself that Jesus is this gentle lamb. And it's true. But it's an incomplete picture to see him only as that gentle lamb. True, he is gentle. And by his own admission, he is humble in heart. And he embodied his own teaching that said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But be aware that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Now we've entered into the last third of the book of Mark in in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And we have actually jumped ourselves headlong into the final week of his life leading up to the crucifixion. So in just one week, we're going to see Jesus delivered over to the Jews. And in the process of being delivered over to the Jews, he will neither defend himself nor will he call upon legions of angels which were at his disposal to put a stop to the pending torturous death that he's going to experience on our behalf. This is power under control. In our passage this morning that we look at, we're going to see Jesus actually, that gentle lamb, 
bow up in strength and power. And he's going to bow up in strength and power in defense of his father's holiness, which is his divine obsession. So I want you to grab that. I want you to see that, yes, it's true that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But with that comes a powerful force that is jealous of his Father's holiness. And he will stand up in righteous indignation in defense of that. So, can I draw your attention to Mark chapter 11? In Mark chapter 11, we recognize that this about nine-month to 12-month journey toward Jerusalem is coming to an end. And the last third of the book is going to deal with this week that leads up to his crucifixion. And what we're going to see this morning is his humble entrance into Jerusalem as well as really this explosive defense against, and here's what he's defending against, this fruitless religiosity which has become the norm of the day in Israel. Okay, So I want to jump in here by reviewing Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and the first point that I'm going to make, his return of glory. So we see this return of glory. Okay, That's where we're headed. So if you don't mind giving that introduction, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, I do thank you For your son Jesus, we long with our service, with our church, with our families, with our marriages, with our very lives to exalt Jesus the Christ. We recognize him and worship him as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So Father, help us in that. I also ask that you would help me as I preach this morning. Give us all, myself included, ears to hear and hearts by which we will receive the word implanted and make adjustments per your leading in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do a a lot of reading of long swaths of scripture this morning, so I invite you as I'm doing that to engage with your copy of God's word. We'll begin with the first big section. There are four sections this morning that we're going to handle, and this one is the return of the glory. So follow along as I read the first 11 verses and then make some comments uh, about this passage. <clears throat> now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it." If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, 
as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We'll finish our reading through the scripture with this section now and jump into just kind of addressing some points as it relates to what we've just read. First, we had the last leg. I want you to see the last leg of this journey. And you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 11 that Mark provides three geographical landmarks. And these help us kind of pin down the route, the route that Jesus took on his approach to Jerusalem. And the route that Jesus followed, and here's what I want you to hear, is a reversal of an incredibly important and a tragic route that had been made centuries earlier. Note that we see the town names Bethpage and Bethany, and as well the location. These are near and and upon the great Mount of Olives. Now the two villages were very close to each other, and, and between the two of these two villages, admittedly, you and I probably are much more familiar with Bethany than we are Bethpage. Bethany means house of depression or house of misery, and it's a village that sat on the eastern slope of Jerusalem. So as, as, I'm, as you're looking at it, you've got Jerusalem, then out to the west at the Mount of Olives, and on the eastern slope, not quite on the top, but near the top, are these two villages, right? And these two towns sat on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, and they're about a mile to a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. So this is a, if it's flat land, it was 20, 20 minutes on a casual walk. Given the fact that they're going down the mountain, you can kind of do the estimation on how long it would have taken Jesus and his disciples to get back and forth. It's kind of famous in our minds for the fact that this is the home of Lazarus. This is where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha would have lived and where Jesus more than likely would have stayed often as they are his friends. But equally important than these two towns that are on the eastern side of this is the fact that Mark has specifically shown us and told us where it is. It is on the Mount of Olives itself. Okay, so let me tell you what had happened in that vicinity about 600 years prior to Jesus' trek back into the city of Jerusalem. In 586 B.C., when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Babylonians and the people were taken off into captivity, Ezekiel saw a vision of something that was, if it could be, if it was more tragic than exile itself. More tragic than captivity is the vision of what he saw. It's recorded in Ezekiel chapter 10, and it's expounded upon in Ezekiel chapter 11. And in those two chapters, we read where Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of God departing the temple. And listen to the route it took. It departed the temple and the royal city of Jerusalem. So the, the glory of the Lord visibly left and rose high above the temple. It went out. I'm, I'm, I'm forced to do this backwards if you'll kind of mirror image this in your own mind. But it, it went out and it hovered over the eastern gate of the city. And then from that area, it went up toward the Mount of Olives where it hovered for a bit and then progressed a little bit until it finally ascended into the heavens about the proximity, this is close proximity, right, 
of Bethany and Bethpage. Now you see in direct opposite order a route that is reversing uh, that, uh, that path where the glory had left. Now check this out in John chapter 1 verse 14, a verse that you may very well have memorized and locked in your memory. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, John wrote, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now check this. Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory. And he, in his route, which was not by accident, is reversing the trek of that tragic departure, which had happened at 586 BC. And God's glory in the person of Jesus is returning to the royal city. And it has in his sight the temple. Such glory could only be ushered in by the Son of God himself, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the chosen and blessed Messiah. And as Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he's he's nearing that place where it's about time to head down the mountain into Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples ahead of him. And with them, he gives specific instructions. Jesus had told the two disciples as they were leaving where they would find the cult that he needed. And he would provide for the two disciples the exact things that they would need to say in in order to receive it and to secure it. He even gave them kind of a password of what to say if questioned about doing that. And everything happened as he said it would happen. Now what I want you to see about this, and not, I'm, I'm intentionally not going back through the whole dialogue about what he, was, what he told them to do, but what I want you to grab hold is this, that the specific nature of Jesus' instructions, it details something for us. It demonstrates the sovereign control that Jesus is employing over what's about to play out that day and what's about to play out that very week. And it gives us hindsight to see that, boy, this route that he's taken, this circuit ride all the way around to get to where he is now, none of that's been by mistake. Jesus is not traveling into Jerusalem as an unknowing victim. We know that already because three times he's already told his disciples what's about to happen. But all of a sudden we have this other evidence. The disciples had this other evidence of, hey, go into the village. Here's what you'll find. Here's what you say. Bring it to me and let's, let's get on with this journey and trek. I hope that's a comfort for you this morning. That the Jesus who was in sovereign control over his own death and crucifixion is in sovereign control over the areas and things going on in our lives. And we can rest in the fact that he who is ordering our steps is present with us as we walk along the path that he is designed and designing for us. So he's not driving and traveling into Jerusalem as an unknown victim, but he has perfect foreknowledge and sovereign authority, and he's demonstrating that throughout um, his journey as he's done this far. Okay. 
I want you also to see some other things related to what he's told these two disciples. I want you to recognize that there is a lot of messianic significance taking place in this narrative. And, and it's only the sake of time that prevents me from kind of talking through fully about all of these things. So let me just kind of point them out and move on. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, so one of the last books of the Old Testament, the prophet writes there and had prophesied that the king, they use the language king in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, but it's, it's also, it is applicable to the Messiah, right? The king would mount a cult and he would enter into Jerusalem um, and he would do so with humility. Now you would think that the king of kings, lord of lords, could enter into Jerusalem with whatever fanfare he wanted. Listen, if, if Prince Ali gets all the fanfare in Aladdin, you could think that the king of kings gets all that and more, right? But our king chooses an entrance into Jerusalem that is in keeping with his, hum- his humility, his meekness, his power under control. It was the prerogative of the king to commandeer and use a beast of burden that had never been used before when he had need of it. And that's all that the explanation was needed and that was required. And you see that language throughout there. So you've, you've got this idea prophesied in Zechariah that the king is going to enter into Jerusalem on a cult. It's never been used before. He's going to do so humbly. You've also got this, this theme going on here in this narrative that the king has commandeered for the, his own use, this cult. When the disciples come back with this cult, they bring it to Jesus, and instinctively, I think, they, they begin to put their cloaks upon the cult. And Jesus mounts the cult and begins his trek into Jerusalem, riding on the back of this cult. Here's another opportunity for us to kind of look back into history and remember something that took place. You'll remember the king, the the wicked king Ahab. Remember Ahab and Jezebel? Before Ahab's death, the spirit of the Lord moved um, a a young uh, servant of the Lord to go to a gentleman by the name of Jehu. It's a weird name, J-E-H-U. And anoint him as the future and coming king to take over after Ahab. And he comes in, anoints him, and leaves just as quickly as he came. And he did so in private. And Jehu's friend said, hey, what was the deal with the visitor? He said, oh, you know, he just had this and that and wanted to talk to us about. And they said, you're not telling the whole truth. Tell us exactly what happened. And it was then that he divulged to his followers that he had been anointed king. The living king is not off the throne yet. And so now you got a little bit of potential issue. What will his followers do? His followers immediately and instinctively took their cloaks off and laid it on the stairs. So now King Jehu can make his trek on a path that is covered with something else. With that in mind, it's not like they're remembering, hey, you know, in Jesus's day. It's not like they're looking back thinking, you know, as I recall... When Jehu was anointed king, they took their cloaks and they put it on the stairs. Maybe we should do the same for Jesus. On the contrary, the disciples as well as the crowds that began to gather in procession, leading him and following behind him, are laying their cloaks on the ground so that Jesus' cult can walk through. 
They're laying palm branches. Did any of y'all ever grow up and on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, the children would walk into the church services waving green palm branches and they would say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's, that's this day. And there is a procession of the crowd that marks his entrance, although he's coming in a humble form on the back of a colt that is recognizing and affirming this is the Messiah. This is the king. But regardless of the fanfare, his entrance into the city is met with an anticlimactic end. It's met with this anticlimactic end, and I want you to see this as we direct our attention to the very last verse of chapter, I'm sorry, the section I read, verse 11. On this day, Jerusalem was not the ultimate destination for Jesus. It wasn't Jerusalem so much as it was the temple. Now the crowds had recognized, the crowds had affirmed him as Messiah, but when he arrived at the temple, the centerpiece of Israel's faith, he in some ways was standing alone, right? He looked around at everything and he saw what the people had made of the temple. And since it was late, nothing happened. It's in the evening that he then turns around and makes his way back to Bethany. And this is a common theme that you'll see throughout this entire passage as we walk through it. Makes it up to Bethany. But then on the next day, Jesus and his disciples head back down to Jerusalem. And what we have next, if you'll remember when Pastor Mark preached, he introduced you to, I think it was a, a, an oatmeal cream pie, the idea of a sandwich issue where Mark organizes his writing with one story that is a bookend, the backside of that story is a bookend, and then a center story right in the middle. And what we have next is the center of, of well, Mark organizes it in this sandwich um, compilation here. The center of that sandwich, the creamy part of the oatmeal cream pie, as it were, involves Jesus, the cleansing of the temple. On either side of Jesus's cleansing of the temple, we have a... a uh, an object lesson of the fig tree first. And then on the back side of it is the explanation of the object lesson of the fig tree. So the reason I'm pointing that out is not to stumble over my words here as I try to do so. But the, the application of the entire rest of this passage is meant for us to take all three of these things together. It's not like Mark is just writing random things that are happening in this last week uh, leading up to his crucifixion, he wants us to see that here's the heart of it, this temple cleansing that Jesus has come to do, but it's prefaced by a lesson that was as important then as it is to us now. So let me draw your attention to the revelation of the charade that Jesus recognized starting in verses 12 and goes all the way through 14. Let me read the first two verses of that section now. On the following day, Mark writes, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, in other words, it's surrounded, it's flowing with leaves, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Let me finish reading there for just this moment and and make a couple comments. So you've had his entry into Jerusalem the day before. He's now gone back up to the mountain to Bethpage, Bethany, and now he's headed back down from there, and he's hungry, and he, he sees this tree. Three words are pretty encouraging to me in this, this initial part that I've read, and it gives us evidence of Jesus's, I'll use the word again, his evident humanity. Think about this with me for a second. Although Jesus is fully God, with all the sovereign power to sustain the universe and to have perfect foreknowledge of what lies ahead of him, he's also fully human. He got hungry. I mean, he, he weeps over things like the death of his friends. He looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he, he weeps with emotion because they appear to be sheep without a shepherd. The salvation of man, which we've just sung and, affir- sung and affirmed, the salvation of man required the lifeblood of a perfect, sinless man who could step in as the, the representative head, as it were, and step in as the substitute for the rest of us who were imperfect and born in sin. Jesus' hunger set the table for a timeless object lesson. And I'd like for you to consider the object lesson now. See it as a visual parable. Like the temple that Jesus had observed the night before, in all its fullness, all its grandeur, all its beauty and the flurry of activity that's even going on in the evening times, which he would have seen, the tree that he's seen in a distance and approach now is full of leaves. The tree gave every appearance of fruit. Both the temple and the tree presented the charade of vitality and fruitfulness, but neither one of them delivered. Mark added this prepositional phrase that's intended to ensure that we know that the point does not ultimately lie with the fig tree. Notice what he says in verse 13. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, I have stayed at a Holiday Inn Express that very much qualifies me to make the next statement, which finds itself rooted in botany. I'm clearly not a botanist, but I have done some reading to kind of corroborate my point here that after the fig harvest, which would have been around mid-August to mid-October, the branches of fig trees would have sprouted some some buds that they remain undeveloped throughout the winter, and those buds would swell into small green knops come March or April. And 
the swelling of those things into knops would, would be followed by the sprouting of leafy buds all over this uh, tree and some of the branches. It was not time for mature figs. However, for a native and maybe even peasants who, who could only afford to find their sustenance by foraging things whenever and wherever they could, whether they tasted good or not, Jesus saw the tree full of leaves and knew that there should be something in there for him to eat. The evidence was visible on the outside and when he goes up to the tree and pulls behind the curtain, there's nothing there. And he uses that as the object lesson for what he does next, where he gives this prophetic curse. Remember, it's not just about the tree. Verse 14, And he said to it, to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And notice what it said. And his disciples heard it. The cursing of that fig tree is a warning for us. But it's also, we're supposed to see that it was prophetic for Israel. The tree was an object lesson for the spiritual barrenness that was pervasive among Israel. Despite the outward appearance that they had all throughout the city and especially at this mega temple of an active religious life. There's, there's hustle and bustle and there's flurry around the temple. But pull behind the curtains. Jesus' cursing of the tree was prophetic of the coming judgment of Israel. Now after cursing the fig tree... Mark directs our attention to the temple. Notice in verse 15, his rejection of the perversion. And I couldn't think of another word there, um, but the temple is being used for something that it was not designed to be used for. Notice Jesus' righteous anger there in 15. I'm going to read verse 15 and 16 for us. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Just as an aside, you should know there were the Gospels give indication that there are two occasions where Jesus cleared out the temple. Don't be confused with this one against the first one that we see in the early pages of John. This one um, is a distinct standalone issue that both Mark, Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention together in their narratives. Hear this about the temple. The temple had gone from being a place of prayer to frankly a big, corrupt business. Sound familiar? The hustle and bustle of the temple more resembled a stock exchange than it did a house of worship. The design of the temple, by God's design, had a place. The temple was divided into different sections. 
And the largest of those sections was the outer section. It was, it was fenced in by rows and rows of giant columns that were about 30 feet tall. And it kind of reminds me of the redwoods in California. This is how massive these things are. That it would actually have taken about three of us to put our arms together to circle around the base of these columns, right? And it is, it is the thing that divided this Gentile court from the other portions of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the, ten, the, the court of women, all of the other places, this was divided off. But this, this court of Gentiles was massive in the first century. The temple began being built in 20, 20 years before Jesus came to earth, and now it is at its final usage point, and that Gentile court is about 35 acres big. Don't think of a court like a porch, whereby what Jesus is describing here would be in a little corner tucked away somewhere. Think about a pervasive issue that has actually uh, saturated the practice of things at the temple. This massive space was the home of a money-making machine, right? You don't have a sacrifice? No problem. If you'll just go down this path and then off to the right, you'll find any kind of lambs that are necessary and appropriate for the sacrifice, and you can buy those there. You can't afford a lamb? Well, if you'll go on this side of the court of Gentiles, you'll find areas where pigeons are sold, and, and those provisions are made for you right there. Oh, I'm sorry. You brought money that you're used to spending outside of the temple that actually have an image of the emperor on it. That's not acceptable here. You'll have to go to the other part of the court of Gentiles and trade that money in for coins that were minted in Tyre. These have no images on it and they're acceptable to be used here. And, and well, there is actually a, a fee associated with that. So if you'll kind of get lined up and we'll take care of all your needs right here. And it is a hustle and bustle of market trading. It would have been loud. Think of the bleeding of, of animals and uh, shepherds bringing them to be used and sold in there by the priest and those who are, who are in there. And Jesus sees what his father's house has become and in full sight of the chief priest and the scribes, he goes full bore line of the tribe of Judah on him. And he starts overturning tables and he drives out the tradesmen. He even stops the traffic flow of making the court of Gentiles into a space whereby it's used as a shortcut to get from point A to point B. Why is he doing all of this? Well, along with his physical intervention, Jesus then provided this reformational teaching. So follow along. And you'll get a little explanation about what he's doing and why he's done it. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And notice what Jesus does. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now here Jesus in his teaching is quoting verbatim from the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The very space that had been set aside for outsiders to approach God and pray has now been converted into a space in which they would be gouged. As we've mentioned already in our study of Mark, the Jewish people had envisioned that the Messiah would come in and they would rid them of the Gentiles. But here Jesus, this Messiah, has come in and he's doing the very opposite. Instead of kicking the Gentiles out to the curb, he's clearing the temple for them. Not the whole temple, but the court of Gentiles. Jesus' actions made the chief priests grow more and more in their resolve to destroy Jesus. The people were listening to him. They were listening to him over them. And once again, they're astonished at his teaching. The next morning, Jesus and his disciples are back on the road. And they pass that fig tree. See how all these fit together. It's one, it's one story, one application, one point for us. Notice how there's a recollection of the curse, verse 20 through 22. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And in this final section, we see no roots. And for those whose faith is in God, not in the institution of religion, no limits. Notice verse 20, how it points out that in the span of the day, the span of one day, the tree had withered away to its roots. You may recall back in Mark chapter 4, we walked through a parable of Jesus where he taught in parable the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower involves a sower who went out to sow seed and some scattered in good soil, some in rocky soil, some in shallow soil, some in soil filled with briars.